On the Sunday of the Fathers of the Fourth Council, we read about them being the light of the world, a city set on a hill. In our minds, we imagine that the theology of the Council is that light. After all, that teaching went out into all the world. However, is that what Jesus had in mind when he said those words? Or did he perhaps have another, more important teaching in mind? The bottom line? To our surprise, the city on a hill can't be located on a map, and its inextinguishable light is not theology, but a law of love that shows us how to walk the way. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Last Sunday, we celebrate the fathers of the Fourth Ecumenical Council. This council, held in 451 AD, is famous for two things the proclamation of Christ in two natures, divine and human, and the elevation of the See of Constantinople above that of Alexandria and Antioch. The reading for this Sunday proclaims You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This acts as a stamp on the council as if to say that these fathers, or at least their proclamations, are that light spoken about in Scripture. But the history of the council is far from glorious, and if light is shined on the events surrounding it, we'll find it's a story of bribery, mobs, murder, accusations, conflict, and politically motivated infighting between Constantinople and Alexandria, with Rome struggling to be heard. In addition, the outcome of the council led to one of the first divisions in Christendom. Many of my listeners will think the first great division is the one between the Orthodox and the Catholics, followed by the division between the Catholics and the Protestants. But this council, in 451, tore the Church apart, dividing it between what we now call the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox. This division lasts to this day and continues to go against the grain of Scripture. As I mentioned on my first podcast, the gospel is about coming together in unity around the Messiah's table of thanksgiving. Jesus' final prayer to his disciples was that all may be one, just as the Father is in the Messiah and the Messiah is in the Father. That's from John 17, 21. And Paul, in his letters, especially in Galatians, argues that the church can't be divided. Yet, despite Scripture's command, the Fourth Ecumenical Council divided the church. And yet, we read about the fathers of the Fourth Council being the light on a hill. But I'm going to take us in a different direction. Whereas most preachers probably spent their time talking about how they saw the fathers shining in the world, I'm going to ask a much more relevant question, a more scriptural question. According to Matthew, what is that light? And what is the city set on a hill? What does the Bible have to say? Let's start with the city on a hill. The best commentary on the Bible is scripture itself. In other words, there's an inner coherence. It self-references itself. The city on a hill should spark our memories and recall Isaiah. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, 
and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3. Isaiah speaks in a time when the Babylonians had come and destroyed Solomon's temple. No longer was there a physical building in Jerusalem for people to flock to. The people themselves had been exiled out of the land, and now they were under the yoke of a foreign king. But for Isaiah and the prophets, this isn't a problem. Isaiah proclaims that God will rescue his people as he once rescued them in Egypt from the yoke of Pharaoh. He will again establish his house, but this time it won't be a house for just the Judeans. This house will attract people from all over the world. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves and start thinking of this new temple as a sort of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, which many of my listeners may want to do, after all, people from all over the world flock to see this architectural achievement. But the prophets don't envision a physical temple. They may use physical imagery to speak about it, but they are using that imagery as a metaphor. It's an image that we can grasp our minds around. But what the prophets actually envision is a temple that is not bound to one physical geographical location. In fact, it's not a building at all. Just listen to how Ezekiel describes it. As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually, and in the middle of the fire something like gleaming amber. In the middle of it was something like four living creatures, each moved straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was something like a dome, shining like crystal, spread out above their heads. And above the dome, over their heads, there was something like a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was something that seemed like a human form. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is an edited version of the first chapter of Ezekiel. Now, that's quite a description. I've seen artists try to portray it, but how can you portray these living creatures going in four different directions at once? You can't. That's the point. The point is that Ezekiel is describing God's throne as a chariot that can go wherever it wants. If his throne is not limited to a geographic location, then his temple is not limited either. In other words, God's word can be proclaimed anywhere at any time. If God's people are in Egypt, then God can raise up a Moses figure to go out and teach the law there. If the people are in the desert of Sinai or in exile in Babylon, it doesn't matter. God's throne can go there as well. Or as Paul teaches, if God decides he wants to go and proclaim his law to the Gentiles in Rome, then there's no problem whatsoever. If we want to put this idea in New Testament terminology, we can't hide the city. It's on a hill. Nor can we put it under a basket to hide it. 
the city is able to be seen by everyone everywhere. So what I'm saying is that when Jesus references a city on a hill that can't be hid, he's referencing an idea from the prophets. First, that this is God's house, a place for all peoples. And secondly, this house is not a physical building or limited to one geographical location. With this in mind, it's ironic then that Orthodox Christians around the world are lamenting the loss of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. In fact, today has been proclaimed a day of mourning and of manifest grief. But how ridiculous! This is to treat Hagia Sophia as if it's a special place where heaven and earth meet. But scripture is quite adamant. God doesn't need or want a physical temple. In fact, God is temple-less, precisely so that he can meet us where we are, whether we're in Greece, Russia, or in America. While Hagia Sophia is an architectural marvel of great magnitude and very beautiful, I've been there myself, it's not a testament to the glory of God. It's a testament to what man can achieve. And compared to God, our achievements are worthless. The real Hagia Sophia is wherever people are gathered around the Messiah's table of thanksgiving, which is where we see the true light as we sing every Sunday in the Orthodox liturgy. But we still have to ask, what exactly is the light? I think Isaiah enlightens us on this point as well. As we look closely at what Isaiah said about the city, there is a big difference between it and the temple that was built in Jerusalem by Solomon. The old temple was a place where people came to sacrifice. They brought their offerings, slaughtered them, and then the offerings were consumed, either by fire, by the priests, or by the people themselves. This house, however, the one set on a hill, will attract people so that instead of consuming sacrifices, they will consume God's law. They will come to learn His ways in order to walk the way. Let me quote Isaiah again. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This seems to be the light that will shine from God's movable house. This law will enlighten all peoples and shine in the darkness. Nothing, not even Satan, can stop it. Now perhaps you think we've come full circle. Aha, you might say. The fathers of the fourth council did have a teaching that went forth. Christ was both fully divine and human. But again, let's stick with Scripture. The way Matthew structures this whole passage is that Jesus' teaching follows the saying about the city and the light. So what did Jesus teach? Well, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus teaches about anger, unfaithfulness using the example of adultery, self-control using the example of oaths, justice by talking about retaliation, and love, even of your enemies. And then he goes on to explain how one truly becomes righteous by giving alms, praying, and fasting, all in secret, where only your Father can see you. There's a common thread that runs through the entirety of the sermon. None of this has to do with what we would call theology or dogma. Instead, it has to do with following the law. It has to do with how we act, how we treat one another. And Jesus says as much in his introductory remarks. Here's Matthew 5:20. Yes, let me tell you, unless your covenant behavior 
is far superior to that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Another translation puts it this way, I tell you then that you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. The light that cannot be hid is not a teaching about who God is in his nature. Rather, it's a law that's given to us to show us how to love one another. This is the light that can't be hid or put out. It's not a proclamation about the humanity or the divinity of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that the fathers of the Fourth Council were wrong about the nature of Christ. After all, as an Orthodox Christian, I do believe Christ is true God of true God, as well as fully human. All I'm saying is that this passage in Matthew is not about Christ's nature. It's about the law that's found in Scripture. This passage is also not a proclamation about the status of Constantinople compared to Rome, Alexandria, or Antioch. And it's definitely not a teaching that breaks table fellowship between sister churches. What Matthew has envisioned is exactly what the prophets envisioned centuries ago, that God's kingdom is a proclamation of his law to all peoples around the world. It's the gospel, the good news. And when we imitate the disciples and go around proclaiming this good news, we become God's movable temple. We are the light that shines in the darkness. And as we proclaim God's instruction to the world, we are truly walking the way. Thank you for listening. This has been The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network.